Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Children this morning, I see a lot of children here today. I want to get your attention here. Um, Children, I wonder if you've ever been to another church uh, where they did a children's sermon. Um, If you've maybe visited another church, sometimes the pastor will invite people up and will sit down and and, and have sort of a special sermon for the children. You, You may, if you've seen this, wonder why don't we do this at Harvest and I want to kind of explain that the reason we we don't do that here is that we actually see you children as a part of the congregation. You don't need kind of a separate thing, and that's also a reason we don't have children's uh, service to send you out of the congregation. We want you right here. Uh, We think that you are baptized members of the congregation and that you belong here. But I say that to tell you that I would guess that sometimes the sermons that you hear maybe don't totally deal with things that are totally happening in your life. And you might be thinking about things and saying, maybe that stuff is for grown-ups. Well, this morning, I want you to pay special attention to the passage that we're reading today this morning, children, because Jesus is talking about you. And as you hear these words from the Bible this morning, Jesus is actually speaking directly to you this morning. And I want you to be listening to Jesus' voice as we study this passage. And I want to also give you uh, something else, a little tidbit for later. Do some of your parents sometimes ask you after the service, hey, what did you hear from the sermon today? What did we talk about that? Well, today is actually in many ways your opportunity to ask your parents what they heard from the sermon. Because a lot of this is about what Jesus is asking your parents to do to bring you to Jesus. Our big idea today is this. Bring the little children to Jesus. Bring the little children to Jesus. Now, it's a short passage. We only have two points um, this morning. First of all, bring little children to Jesus in verse 13. And then the second point is Jesus blesses little children in verses 14 and 15. Bring, a little, or bring little children to Jesus. And number two, Jesus blesses little children. So we'll start off in this First verse, verse 13, bring little children to Jesus. Uh, Matthew transitions into this passage with the word then. Now again, we always pay attention in the Gospel of Matthew to how Matthew transitions us. Sometimes he gives us very specific timelines. Sometimes he'll say immediately or sometimes after six days. But here the word then is very general. We're not sure entirely how much time has passed since Jesus talked about marriage and divorce in the previous passage to what we're reading here. But probably this general word then is supposed to tell us that there's really a thematic connection. There's a a connection of ideas between what Jesus talked about in marriage and divorce in the previous passage and what he talks about for children here. The first connection is very logical, that children come from marriages. And so there's a very close connection to the idea of marriage and the importance of marriage and the children that proceed from marriages. Uh, But the second idea is what um, one commentator, Craig Craig Blomberg, says, is he notices that in the previous passage, you remember in that passage, the Pharisees, the powerful Pharisees came up to Jesus, and Jesus rebuffed them. He stiff-armed those powerful Pharisees. 
but relatively helpless children are embraced. Children, I suspect that sometimes you feel passed over in life, that other things are maybe considered too important for you. Jesus never saw things that way. Jesus always had time for the most important things in his life, the children who were around him. And that's what brings us to this passage here. We read that children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them. Now, the word here for children is the exact same word that we see in the next verse, in verse 14, when it's translated little children. Let the little children come to me. And so we're understanding that this word is what's called a diminutive. It's a word that's like, um, you, you might use it as a, in a cutesy way, oh, sweetie, or something like that. It's an idea of a, a very small, cute thing, a cutie pie. You know, that, that, we might say that in English. The way it's phrased here is it's, it's not just children generically. It's, it's little children. In fact, Luke 18, verse 15 says that this would include the littlest children, that infants were brought to him in this story. And the idea that these children were brought, it's a passive idea. Um, this is the language of the wise men brought um, gifts for Jesus. It's often used for sick people who can't transport themselves to Jesus, and their friends have to bring them to Jesus. It's the idea here that parents are bringing these children to Jesus. You don't have sort of a pack of kids out on the playground, and they say, hey, there's Jesus. Let's all go over to Jesus. We're really told the story is that these are parents deliberately bringing their little children to Jesus. Specifically, we're told so that Jesus might lay his hands on them, that he might bless them. Now, some people have read this and thought, well, maybe these parents are approaching Jesus wrongly. Maybe there's some superstition here, and they're looking to Jesus as some kind of magician who can lay his hands on them and, and magically bless them in that way. But I think what other um, people have, have said in response to that is probably true, that if these parents really did have a superstitious idea of what they were doing when they came to Jesus, Jesus would have rebuked them. I think, for example, of John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000, Jesus in the night crossed over the Sea of Tiberias to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee there, and all these people, when they realized that he had somehow slipped away in the middle of the night, followed him across the sea. And when they come to Jesus, Jesus rebukes them. He says, you're not here to see me. You're here because you're hungry again. You're here so that I'm going to feed you again. You're not here for Jesus. You're here for the food. By the way, today, thankfully, you can be here for Jesus and the food. We have a fellowship meal afterward that we want to remind you of and invite you to. But we have here Jesus not rebuking the parents. Instead, we see that the disciples rebuked the parents. And then Jesus in the next verse is going to rebuke the disciples. We don't know exactly what was in the minds of these parents who were bringing their children to Jesus. It probably wasn't a fully developed faith. But they knew enough and they believed enough about Jesus to bring these children to Jesus. Well, if that's the case, why did the disciples rebuke these parents? I think probably it's important to remember the preceding two passages where we have seen Jesus begin to critique some of the standard practices in the culture of this day, in first century Judaism. If you remember back in Matthew 18, verse 21, uh, the issue at that point was, how often do I have to forgive my brothers? The Jewish rabbis taught three times, and then it's done. Peter, wanting to seem generous in the eyes of his master, said, well, what if we do it seven times? Then are we done forgiving our brother? And Jesus said, no, without limit, 77 times. As often as your brother repents and comes to you, you must forgive him. 
It wasn't something that was defined on the legalism of the teachers of that day. It was based on the free grace of God himself. Well, then in the next passage, the passage we looked at last week, the question had to do with divorce. And in Matthew 19, we looked at the, there were two different ideas. There was a strict view of exceptions that made divorce permissible, of lax views that made more exceptions that would allow a divorce to be permissible. And Jesus said, if you go back to the beginning, marriage was meant from creation to be permanent. Sometimes it is so fractured by sexual immorality that divorce is a necessary evil, but it was never the purpose from the beginning. So Jesus critiquing these ideas of his culture about forgiveness, about divorce, and now about children. You see, in those ideas, in, the, in those days, children were seemingly too unimportant to bother an important man like Jesus with. And so the disciples saw themselves as bouncers, as crowd control. We can't let these unwashed children come to the master. And they wanted to keep these children from Jesus. And this shouldn't have been, because previously, Jesus pointed to children as examples of exactly the kind of king, people who would enter the kingdom. These kinds of people, and only these kinds of people. In Matthew 18, verse 4, he said, whoever humbles himself like this child will enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you do not humble yourself like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's different here in this passage, the next chapter after that passage, is that Jesus is not just talking about people who were like Jesus, the lowly, the down and outs of the world, although that's important. He hasn't shrunk back away from that teaching. Here he's talking about actual children and his attitudes toward actual children that parents were bringing to him. What we're seeing here is a really important principle for understanding the sweep of the Bible. That Jesus is teaching that his kingdom is more inclusive of children than what had happened previously in the Old Covenant among traditional Jewish teaching. Jesus must correct these old, outdated views that wrongly exclude children from the place that he intends for them in his kingdom. Now, John Calvin writes on this passage, he says this, Christ receives not only those who are moved by a holy desire and faith in themselves and so therefore freely approach to him on their own, but Christ also receives those who are not yet of age to know how much they need his grace. Now, children, I want to apply this first to you as you think about what we're seeing here. I'm guessing that your parents have brought you places in the past that you didn't want to go. Maybe your sister's piano recital. Those are never fun. Maybe your brother's soccer game. I mean, they're, they're not that good, right? And so you're watching this and you're thinking, I don't want to be here. And, and maybe today, this morning, you didn't want to be brought here today. Let me let you in on a secret. Most of us, when we were children, didn't want to come to church either. I remember talking with my grandmother, and I remember saying to her, I, I had the blessing of attending church with my grandparents when I was a child and saying, I just don't like going to church at all. Do you like going to church, Grandma? And she said, oh, I love it, but when I was your age, I didn't either. My grandma, one of the most saintly people I know, didn't like going to church as a child. So why are your parents doing this? Why are they bringing you here to church? Let me help to understand, to get in the mind of your parents what they're trying to do for you. Your parents understand something that you will only understand later in life, namely that you cannot learn to love something that you never do. 
You cannot learn to love coming to church by staying out of church, by staying away from church. There will likely not come a day if you are kept out of church that one day you will just be zapped and decide, I want to go to church. It happens by the grace of God. But the better, better way for your ch parents to introduce you to Jesus is to regularly bring you here to church. Again, this is why we don't have children's church. Some children benefited from it. I benefited from it in my life. But the reason we don't do it here is because we want you to have access to Jesus and the place that Jesus comes to meet with his people by the Holy Spirit is when the whole church of all the baptized people of God, children and adults are gathered together to worship our Lord. But I also want to tell you something, and maybe this will help you as you have to go to piano recitals and soccer games and the like. I had experiences seeing my little brother do things that I wanted nothing to do with being there at the time that I look back now and really appreciate, really treasure. You only have so much time with your siblings when you're leaving them before you grow up and move out of the house and maybe move to different sides of the country or different sides of the world. Someday you will be thankful for these things and your parents love you enough to bring you to things and especially they love you enough to bring you to Jesus this morning. When you're talking with your parents today about the sermon, you can thank them for that. Now adults, I want to apply this to you. As Jesus is talking about children, we have to recognize that if the culture of Jesus' day was confused about children, devalued children, this is so much more pronounced in our day. Now, I want to talk about some of the ways that this happens, but I want to start off by saying that I, I, I'm not scolding. I want to acknowledge some really deep issues of concern about how our society sees children, but I want to first of all do one thing, first of all to say that if you are involved in any of these, understand that the grace of the gospel of Jesus calls you to repentance, where there is forgiveness and cleansing and healing for these things. But the second thing that I want to do is to show why the church is understood to be opposed to certain things that are a matter of course in the world. And I want to understand why we do these things in light of partially what Jesus is teaching here. The first thing that we see in this world is we see widespread abortion. And now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, we see vehement opposition to any kind of limitations on abortion that are, uh, that are promoted or proposed at any point in time. Now, we lament this not because we are against women. In fact, we recognize that it is a tragedy to the mother and especially to the child destroyed in the womb when this happens. Because Jesus sees children as precious, born or unborn, formed together, knitted together in the womb, we believe that children are precious all the way immediately from conception. And so abortion is a great evil, but again, there is healing and forgiveness. Or the prospect technologically, we have things that previous cultures couldn't necessarily do and so we have to deal with different things. The prospect of maternal surrogacy that treats children as commodities to be bought and sold. This cuts entirely against the teaching of Scripture where children are not commodities. They are brought into the lives of their parents as blessings and this is something that we need to protect. Or the practice of in vitro fertilization. On the surface, it may be a little bit more difficult to understand what happens there until you understand that in in vitro fertilization, many different children are created in embryo form. And some are born, but the rest are discarded. Again, these are children made in the image and likeness of God. And they're kept in test tubes until they're discarded altogether. 
Or the problem that we have in our society of placing children for adoption uh, with homosexual couples. This puts children in a context of sexual immorality and it deprives children either of a mother or a father. This is something we oppose not because we are opposed to any people, but because of what the Word of God gives to us about what the family ought to be and what the blessing there is there and the preciousness of children and how we need to be protecting them in that. Also in our day, we grieve how often children are encouraged, even at very young age, to take psychological, pharmaceutical, and surgical interventions to transition from male to female or female to male. God made His people to be male and female. This is something that's from the beginning. It is precious. It is a gift. And children in impressionable stages should not be led astray in confusion in this. Now again, I, I want to tell you why we think these things are so important. It is because we take seriously what the Word of God says and because we take seriously that Jesus values children deeply. But that's not only influencing what we don't do, what we oppose. It also means that we must be people who are committed to certain things. Number one, it means that we must be commit people who are committed to children in our midst. We see children of the highest value. We all, look around, we have a lot of children in here. And, and one part of this is that when children are having a rough moment, we bear with them, right? We recognize that these are fellow members of the body. We're grieving right with those littlest members who are grieving in the loud ways that they grieve in our midst. We're with them. These are parts of our body. We're showing compassion to one another. We're loving one another in this. But it also means that we should encourage children, both, both born and adopted by couples, there is a rise and a desire in our culture not only to marry later and later in life, we talked about this last week a little bit, but also to put off children later and later in life, maybe altogether. Again, Jesus is telling us that we need to have the highest view of children in our midst. But in saying this, I, I want to be very clear. I recognize that there are many in here who suffer with infertility and miscarriage. And again, like we talked about last week, for those who want to marry but cannot marry, and this is a source of grief, we don't want to sort of downplay the importance of marriage to accommodate certain difficult situations that people are in. In fact, it's only by understanding how important marriage is in God's created order that we can really help people and grieve people, grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who grieve, bear one another's burdens in this. My, my wife and I have suffered two miscarriages. And it's a devastating thing to lose a child. Not a fetus, not an embryo, but a child who is made in the image of God. But when we think about these issues, we also have to go back to the scriptures and recognize that in the case of infertility, the Lord is so compassionate. People who struggle with infertility issues are consistently, in Old and New Testament, brought to the center of God's plan of redemption. And even in those cases where children are lost to miscarriage, you know, one of the greatest comforts that my wife and I have is to know that the two children that we never met in this life are real people. And they will be in heaven because God has made promises to be God to our children after us as he has been God to us. There are certain promises in the Bible that we can trust our Savior, that those children are in heaven and we will know them for all of eternity, even if we were not given days on this earth with them here.
So a high view of children is the first idea. The second idea is that we believe that Christians are called to care for the orphans in our society. We live in a world that is very broken on issues of sexuality, on marriage and divorce, and there is a veritable tidal wave of children who are the cast-off second thoughts about this practice, these practices. And again, I say that with great compassion to those who have struggled in these areas. There is forgiveness, there is healing, there is cleansing. But I want to acknowledge there are many children with great needs right now. There's a tidal wave of children in foster care. And, and I use that term foster care loosely. This can be a lot of different forms. Sometimes it means children who are make, taken as wards of the state and you have to be a licensed foster parent to do this. Uh, there are other ways to care for children in need as those needs arrive. And I want to recognize that not everyone can receive this saying, but Christians really do need to leave in general, lead in general in foster care. How many of you have taken care of vulnerable children? Maybe for a short time, maybe permanently. And I want to remind us of the words of James in James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I'd encourage you, if you have questions about foster care, I can talk to you. I've been a foster, or had been a foster care for 10 years. I'd encourage you to consider this calling. Um, it is a very hard thing, but the Lord blesses it because he values children. The third application that I want to mention here is that we believe as Christians that children's ministry is one of the greatest investments that people can make with their lives. The Lord Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And because of that, he treasures children's ministry. To those of you who have invested so much time, you've been in the Sunday school classrooms, you've given them snacks in nursery, uh, you've helped to carry children, maybe just even for a little bit to help a parent who's struggling, I want to thank you so much. I want you to understand that those investments you make are you are investing in precisely the things that Jesus Christ says has great, extraordinary value in his kingdom. We want to have a culture here at Harvest where children's ministry is prized and valued. We want to be in a place where so many people recognize the great eternal value of children's ministry that we have too many people volunteering for the children's ministry that we have to turn away nursery volunteers. We'd love to get for that place when everyone sees the value of children in our church. And if we really did put the same value, just like thinking about investing in the stock market, you might invest a look at a company and see the prospects for the, the greater return, the payoff one day later. We're not talking about monetary value, but eternal kingdom payoff. If we recognize those values, we'd be there. I want to thank you for those of you who recognize that and to invest your lives there. And I want to encourage, maybe some of you have been thinking about this for a while, I want to encourage you to take that next step in that direction. Well, so far we've just looked at the first verse. We'll pick it up, I promise, pick up the pace. Uh, we go now to the second section here, the response. These parents bring the little children to Jesus, and now what does Jesus do in response? The second section is that Jesus blesses little children. We read in verse 14, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, children, do you hear those words? Children, did you hear the words of Jesus? He's speaking to you. Let the little children come to me. The Lord Jesus Christ does not overlook you. He does not forget you. He does not count you as second-class citizens. He calls you to come to him 
and he rebukes any who would stand in your way. Let the little children come to Jesus. And again, while the world sees the big important people as great in their eyes, Jesus promises that to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. In that he is calling you to embrace Jesus for salvation in the same way that every single other person, man, woman, and child, must embrace Jesus for salvation. To turn from your sins and your disobedience against God and to turn to Jesus in faith. And the promise is that wherever you are, whatever you have done in life, there is no sin too great that Jesus Christ does not forgive and cleanse you of your sins. And Jesus calls directly to you this morning, children. So what does he mean by this? You know, it's interesting to read the commentaries on this passage because where Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to such as these, to such belong the kingdom of heaven, you find in the commentaries that many otherwise faithful Christians reject this teaching. They argue that the, the language of to such as these or to such, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, that that is actually a phrase that Jesus used in their minds to exclude little children from the kingdom. As though Jesus were only talking about people who were like children. For example, D.A. Carson, a man that I have great respect for, he is a believer. I think he's so helpful in so many areas. He comments this, he says, Jesus says this not because the kingdom of heaven belongs to children, to them, but because they are an excellent object lesson in the kind of humility and faith he finds acceptable. Jesus says the kingdom belongs to these. And these commentators, on the other hand, say the kingdom doesn't belong to them, but it belongs only to people like them. Now, it's certainly the case that when Jesus says to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, that that has to go beyond the children. But again, Jesus isn't just teaching these children as an object lesson. He's saying these children possess the kingdom of heaven. To them belongs the kingdom. We dare not exclude the very children that Jesus is teaching to include. So what leads otherwise faithful Bible teachers to do this, and, and why are we so in insistent upon this point? Well, it comes down to differing views of the theology of baptism. And what this passage is really doing is it is showing us a passage that is a very important in supporting the practice we have of infant baptism. We baptize infants here. We believe that in part by letting the little children come to Jesus, that includes infant baptism. And I want to give you, um, maybe you've heard some arguments on this. Maybe it's something you're still wrestling with. I, I want to teach you why our church preaches, teaches, and practices infant baptism. Now, I want to be very clear. There are reasons we wouldn't argue that this passage relates to infant baptism. Some have looked at the word that Jesus has here, hinder. Let the little, little children come to me and do not hinder them and pointed to the fact that this word shows up in other passages related to baptism. For example, in Acts 8, verse 36, you have the eunuch who's being evangelized by Philip, and he comes to believe in Jesus from reading Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And as they're going along, we read, along the road they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me? What hinders me? What withholds me? That word right there, from being baptized. Then in Acts 10, verse 47, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles, they declare, can anyone withhold, hinder, water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so some people have argued that that connection of that word suggests, well, we're, we really have infant baptism, child baptism in view in this passage. Now, I find that argument a stretch. 
I think it's perhaps possible, but I don't think it's totally clear from the passage. And so I want to be clear, when we say that this passage supports infant baptism, uh, we're not saying we practice infant baptism because of this text directly, as though this alone were needed for infant baptism, but rather that the doctrine of infant baptism rests on this text. Because what is happening here is that this isn't a passage about baptism. This is a passage of the place of, king, of children in the kingdom of the new covenant. Excuse me. This is a passage where the children belong in the new covenant. And when we read the Old Testament and New Testament and compare the two, we find that the New Testament, the new covenant, is actually far more inclusive of children than the old covenant had been. And here we see Jesus teaching us why. Because the kingdom belongs to such as these. You see, in the Old Covenant, what happened was believers who married unbelievers, especially who married pagans, they were profaned by that marriage. The uncleanness of their pagan spouses profaned them, and it meant that their children would be cut off from membership in the covenant community. We read this in Malachi 2, verses 11 through 12, where the prophet says, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And then the prophet Malachi goes on to say this, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant, any children, of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So again, two things happened if you married the daughter of a foreign god. You were profaned, and additionally you would profane those things around you, like the sanctuary, but also your children would be cut off from the tents of Jacob, from the inclusion in the people of God. But in the New Testament, those two things are overturned. In the New Covenant, unbelieving spouses are not the ones who profane their believing spouses. Believing spouses rather make their unbelieving spouses sanctified in some sense. The influence flows in the opposite direction. And furthermore, this happens so that the children can be preserved as holy before the Lord. This is clearly taught in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 where Paul writes, for the unbelieving husband is made holy, not profaned like in Malachi 2, but made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Why? Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. You see, even in the old covenant, believers were not supposed to divorce believing spouses for the sake of the, their children. Malachi, just a few verses later in chapter 2, starts talking about divorce and talks about, just like in the previous passage, that God hates divorce, that the people of Israel had been faithless to the wives of their youth when they had divorced their wives, believing wives. And why did God hate divorce? Well, Malachi 2 verse 15 says this, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, godly children. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. But then if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul goes on to say, for this very reason, because the new covenant works differently, you shouldn't even divorce your unbelieving spouse for the sake of your children, for the sake of the influence you will have on your children. So if you look at the trajectory from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's not that in the Old Testament the children of believers were circumcised, but now the children have no part in the New Covenant. In fact, those connections have been strengthened. In the New Covenant, Jesus says the kingdom belongs to such as these. 
And they are called to be included in the new covenant, and therefore, on that basis, they should be baptized. Well, let me apply what we're seeing in the second section. The application is very simple. It's our big idea. Bring the little children to Jesus. And to continue my thought from just a moment ago, the first thing this means is, first of all, bring children to Jesus for baptism. Bring little children to Jesus for baptism. Again, infants were included in the old covenant by the covenant sign of circumcision. And here Jesus is teaching about a greater inclusion of children in the new covenant. In the new covenant, again, it's not just the children of two believing spouses, it's a one believing spouse. And Jesus is saying that children, the, the kingdom belongs to these little children. And if the kingdom belongs to them, here's the big question I would push on you. I know some of you are wrestling with this question, have been for a while. If the kingdom belongs to the children, by what sense can they be excluded from this kingdom? If they are included in the new covenant then, by what standard can they be excluded from baptism? Because scripture teaches that circumcision in the Old Testament, which was applied to infants eight days old, and baptism now perform exactly the same function. One for the administration of the Old Covenant, one for the administration of the New Covenant. In both cases, they are a sign and a seal, a symbol and a ratification of the fact that righteousness comes to God's people by faith. And that is a promise that is declared in the preaching of the Word and that is put on the bodies of God's people in the Old Covenant by circumcision and in the New Covenant by the waters of baptism. We see this connection in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12 where Paul writes, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. But the question is, well, how is this circumcision of Christ accomplished? Well, he continues to explain it. Having been buried with him in baptism. Your circumcision comes by baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What Jesus is teaching us here is that we cannot say that the children are now excluded. Jesus rebukes those who would hinder the children from coming to him. And Paul explains that the children of even one believing spouse are holy. Therefore, bring these little children to Jesus for baptism. Now again, we recognize that not everyone believes in the validity of infant baptism. But if you do not, I, I want to encourage you to take another look at this verse. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Either you have to say that Jesus means everybody but little children, only those who are like little children but not little children, but that's clearly not what he's saying. He's talking about actual children. So let the little children come to him and do not hinder them. But the second application has to do with what we do with our children the rest of the time. Baptism is a one-time event. What do we do with them for the rest of their lives? And I want to encourage you, bring the little children to Jesus by leading them to close with Christ by faith. We do not believe that children are saved by putting water on their heads. We think it's important. We think that God holds out his covenant promises to them by the sacrament of baptism, but they are not saved by that act. What the scriptures teach is that these children... Just like in the Old Covenant, you had a lot of circumcised Jewish males who grew up to apostatize. They weren't saved. They had the promises, but they rejected believing in those promises. So also today that the baptism of children doesn't save them, but what it does is it teaches them. It puts on their bodies a sign that reminds them that righteousness comes by faith. 
Children, I want to tell you something. Your parents brought you here today, and praise God that they did. But you will not be saved by the faith of your parents. Your parents can teach you about the promises. They can pray with and for you. They can read to you the scriptures and teach you the doctrines of our holy religion, all that we believe as Christians from the Bible. But you will never be saved on the basis of their faith. God makes promises to you on the basis of the faith of your parents, but you must lay hold of those promises for yourself. This morning, I want to encourage you, if you are a child and you have heard these promises, but this morning you hear Jesus speaking especially to you, let the little children come to me, would you come to him in faith? Would you pray right now, wherever you are silently, looking to Jesus, saying, I am sorry for my sins, and I want you, Jesus, to forgive me and to cleanse me. This is what he is calling to you to do. His promise is not only for believers, promises for you and for your children, but it's also for those who are far off. The least of these, those cast off by the world, not only to the children, but to such as these. To those who are not thought of as high and mighty in the world, Jesus calls to you too, wherever you are. Jesus is calling everyone to turn in faith to him. Parents, are you praying again with and for your children? Are you teaching them the scriptures and all that we believe as Christians? Adults, are you recognizing the value of teaching the children in our congregation to believe in Jesus and investing your time, talents, and treasures into leading children to Christ? When Jesus says, bring the little children to him, and little children, come to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us so clearly, by which we hear the voice of Jesus speaking loudly, speaking clearly, cutting through the confusion of our age. Father, we pray that as Jesus Christ speaks in his word, that you would draw us to faith in Christ. We pray that you would give, especially the little children in our midst, the desire, just like we had a child up here a couple of weeks ago, to confess that she had laid a hold of the faith that her parents had taught to her. We pray that this would happen again and again that the children who are baptized in their infancy would now give praise to God, confess the faith that they hold. And I pray that even this morning, Father, you would be leading children to faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.